Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Meet you guys. Yeah, you know, yeah, you too. Likewise, Tony. Yeah, pleasure having you on, Tony. Definitely, man, and I appreciate that. And I was just doing my research. Well, I did a couple weeks ago on you guys, but you know, just looking at some of your previous podcasts and stuff like that. I mean, you guys have some really awesome people on your podcast. Thanks. So yeah, I feel privileged, man. I honestly do. Hey, what's uh, what? I'm looking behind you. What what am I looking at there? Is that a so so in my office? Okay, there's yeah. I knew it was an anatomy. Okay, there we go. Okay. Okay, so when I go over client stuff, I I like to use a lot of visuals. So I have pretty much every segmental part of the body up there as well as like a human life-size poster so when i'm explaining things whether it's neurological whatever it might be hormone i like to draw because i feel like you know if i'm just using big words people are like what yeah. so then if i yeah. draw that's it i understand that yeah. yeah it's it's funny when i try to remember something or if i think i'm going to forget something i'll write it down or do something like that and then I'll, then by having that i know i'll remember it even though i don't need it at that point but if i don't write it down then i'm guaranteed to forget it <laughs> oh, without about. a doubt and especially with which as much as like how much information's in our industry mm -hmm. i guarantee i forget 99 percent of the stuff i learn anyway until like re, re gravitates and i'm like oh shit that's right until you use it yeah yeah, a lot of that is just knowing where to find stuff. You know, you read it, you learn it, you know where it is. You, you might forget a few of the nuances, but uh, being able to pull that back stuff up is, is helpful. Hey, uh, Tony, let me ask you just, uh, you know, you see the behind Jack is his screen says human performance outliers. And I know one of the things that we saw was you, you are interested in human performance. So definitely part of what you do. So tell us a little bit about your background for the folks that aren't aware of who you are, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I got in the industry when I was 15 years old, started working over at Gold's Gym and uh, gravitated on that old school mentality of uh, bodybuilding, isolated body parts, you know, massive amounts of protein, which was great, though, because back in that time, you know, I'm 36 years old now. So back then, it, it kind of was the start of the industry. Well, I would not the start, but, you know, kind of segueing into it. Then uh, I did that, you know, spent four years in the Coast Guard. After I got out, I went right back into the fitness industry and you know, I never left really. And I uh, spent a lot of times in Gold's Gym. My first like real official training position was over at uh, the fitness director at San Diego Gold's Gym. And from then on, I, I kind of transitioned through gyms throughout San Diego County. And, you know, education was a huge role, got my undergrad at SDSU. And then I stayed with nutrition, got a degree in business as well. And now I'm currently working on my PhD in human performance. Um, which I kind of bounced around between nutritional biochem for a while, working on my PhD with that. But then, you know, I quickly realized that, you know, translating, you know, chemistry to clients just didn't make sense. And I was just always talking above their heads. And then I found this program at Concordia, which was human performance, which is kind of a little bit of everything that we do. You know, it's got biomechanics, it got sports nutrition kind of integrated. So doing that right now, and I enjoy it. I'm able to uh, 
actually translate what I'm learning directly with clients and, you know, with my other trainers here at my facility. Um, so currently what I do now is I own two gyms, Kick Up Fitness and Performance. And I just opened up a practice between me and another uh, doctor of physical therapy called Performance Sports Rehab and Nutrition. So what we're trying to do is just integrate both of the fields. And what him and I realize is, you know, a lot of the inflammatory markers that were correlated between being injured and diet and all this other stuff was like, if you do one and a lot of the rehab sense, if you're doing a lot of rehab, but you're not taking care of internally what your body's doing, that rehab was never actually getting done internally. So we correlated that um, and it's been going phenomenal. We use a lot of stuff that we probably all used in school. So um, I got a VO2 max machine. I got EMG machines. So I correlate a lot of that with uh, what we're doing today. So that's it in a nutshell. So, what, and, you know, I appreciate the background. You know, I've been, I've been somebody who's been, you know, lifting and training for now close to, I mean, basically 40 years. So, I mean, I've been doing this stuff forever and kind of seeing the, you know, the progression and the different, you know, turns and stuff like that that have come over the years. You know, it always seems like, you know, at the bottom line, it's, it's still the basics team to work for everybody. It's, you know, doing resistance training, eating right. I mean, that, that's the end of the day. All the other stuff seems to be fluff. But what have you uh, – so tell me about your progression over the years as far as what has been things that you found that have been dead ends and what has, what has actually, you know, kind of shown to be beneficial for the most people. Yeah, I mean, Sean, you said it best. The reality is what I've, what I've seen works are basic movements. The, we have definitely – progressed with understanding the body right we're still finding new muscles and new ligaments and all this other stuff but the baseline of biomechanics are still the baseline of biomechanics so i'm very much of a trainer where i stick to the the meat and potatoes and i'm not you know balancing on bosu balls and no offense to anybody does that but that's just not who i am and what i believe in so i stick with that in the basics but as far as the body goes with the nutrition side of what i do i feel like that side is forever changing. And what I've noticed over the years is, especially coming in what I meant by the gold gym background, I kind of came from that old mentality of, you know, the isolation of the body parts and, you know, you need 250 grams of protein and different things like that to where now I integrate a lot more science and maybe I don't need all that protein. Maybe I don't need to eat eight times a day. Maybe I don't need 600 grams of carbohydrates and different things like that. So I think I, I try to blend in like the reality of life of what I know works because I've seen it over the years and I'm sure you guys have seen it within your experience. And I try to take the science too and saying, okay, well, the science speak volumes and I try to integrate both of those worlds. And that was like the big probably push for me to, you know, create performance because the reality is what I've seen a lot and I'm just talking more so in my town in Annapolis, Maryland. I seen there was a lot of nutritionists because that's very common now that they were just spitting out all these macronutrient numbers. And I'd be like, okay, well, where did you get those numbers from? And no one knows. They're just pulling numbers out of their ass. So that was something why I legitimately, I was like, okay, well, I need to go back to the basics and VO2 max testing and, you know, RMR testing. That is the basics because it's been around from the stand of time. So I went back to the basics and I actually started testing people's, you know, standing metabolic rate and incorporating the other parameters that include in that with, you know, as far as knee and thermic effect of food and different things like that on top of energy expenditure. So I kind of integrated like the old school standards 
with signs and it's been working out great because now it eliminates a lot of the guessing and granted there's always going to be flaws and there's always going to be something to, you know, that isn't exactly going to work. We all have those friends that are just freaks of nature that probably eat once and they're jacked and you're like, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. But yeah, so that's, that, that's it. Well, and what you've said kind of makes a lot of sense to me too. And I, you know, I'm working with mostly endurance athletes and a lot of times extreme endurance athletes, but like really for most people that they come to me first, we have a conversation about, you know, these first few months might seem a little boring or seem a little, a little dry because like being consistent with the basics is going to put you in a position to be able to maybe do some interesting different things at the, at the end of the training when you're trying to get yourself that last little bit, but let's, let's get the basics taken care of. Let's get consistent and get you 90, 95% of the way there. And then we'll worry about what kind of specific things we need to do at the very end when we're getting closer to whatever event they're kind of training for. And it, it seems like a lot of times people get that backwards. They see like all these flashy new workouts or some new trend or something that's, that's kind of exciting or different. And, and I, I guess that, that can be comp- appealing, I think, to someone who maybe has already done some of the basics at one point in their life. And they're just like, wow, that again, kind of a mentality. And it, it gets easy to get sucked into something that is a secondary purpose thing or something that should be reserved for like the last bit. Yeah, no, Zach, you're a hundred percent. One of the struggles that we have to deal with as coaches is how do we convince, you know, I, I deal with a lot of endurance athletes just in relevance more to like, I actually do VO2 max testing. So those are the ones that are more interested in that than anything else. But how do we, how do we coach somebody? And this is a conversation that me and my peers have as well. So I definitely want to get your guys' input on this, but if somebody comes to you and they have been Instagramming for the last two days and all of a sudden they have this abundance of information and they're saying, well, I need to do this and I need to do this. And I heard ketogenic diets was the way for my endurance to be perfect and blah, blah, blah. So how do you coach them and try to unwind all of that? You know, I don't want to say craziness because some of it's valid, yeah. but a lot of it's like, well, where did you yeah. get that from? But how uh-huh. do you unwind that? What's some of your guys' objectives on that are? Yeah, I would say like the majority of my console calls are getting to the bottom of that specifically, because a lot of times what will happen, at least from my experience, is someone will do what you said. They'll hop on Instagram, hop on Facebook, hop online. They'll just be bombarded with all these different things they can do to improve themselves. You know, they might get to, they'll see cold showers, they'll see sauna, they'll see train this way, train that way. And they'll have like a dozen different things that they feel they need to do lifestyle wise to make changes in order to get where they want to be. And it may be that eventually they want to include all those things. But when they come to me like that, usually what I do is I say, okay, well, let's look at what your goal is here. So if they tell me, well, my goal is to lose 20 pounds or my goal is to run my fastest you know, marathon or something like that. Then I say, well, let's hyper-focus on that goal and let's look at it from a physiological stress standpoint and understand that we want to be micro-stressing you, not macro-stressing you. So if we do all 12 of these things all at once, when you've never done any of them before in your life, we're going to put your body through a huge macro-stress. And like you're, you're, you may not be able to tease out what's working, what's not working. You may not adapt at all because you're just throwing so many different things at yourself at the same time. So let's go back to the very beginning and decide which one of these makes sense to do first. Let's get that under control, figure out how your body responds to that. Does it produce what we're looking for, whether that be the weight loss or the performance improvements? Then let's add another thing and add another thing. And, you know, maybe then by the end of the whole thing, we have some of those other things on there as well, but we're always going to kind of introduce them one at a time and let them, their body kind of catch up to that. 
no, no doubt. Um, Sean, did you want to touch in on that? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is sort of trying to get people to understand, just like we talked about earlier, I mean, the basics are what moves a needle, and then people get – I mean, they get hung up on the minutia of everything. And it's like oh, you're trying to – you know, I mean, you, you know, you got people in there doing, you know, one-legged BOSU ball balances, you know, what I'm just to use an analogy while they're, while they're raising their left, you know, big toe, you know, trying to make some strange game. And you're like, just do, just do squats. You know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's that, I mean, I see that the, the analogy goes to nutrition and supplementation and all this sort of insanity that we put upon ourselves for stuff that's, you know, people just, if they just would do the basics, if they would just eat a basically good diet and train, you know, I mean, 98% of their issues would be solved. And, and, you know, and, and all this, you know, people are just fascinated by, you know, the, their, their methylation of, you know, their, their DNA or uh, their heart rate variability, or, I mean, they just, they just go off into the weeds so much. I mean, and it's not that those things can't have a role, but it's just that some people put that stuff in front of everything else and they're not doing any of the things that, make 99% of the difference. And so that's why I try to get people to do it. It's say, you know, the, 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 the keep it simple, stupid sort of paradigm. It really does work for, for most people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard because everybody's, everybody wants the magic pill, the flash in the pan, the, you know, the five minute fix. And it's, you know, it's, it's just years and years of consistency and doing the right thing. And that's, that's the hardest thing for people to understand sometimes. Well, I, I definitely, you guys have both said two words that stuck out to me like glue. Zach, you said adaptations and you said consistency, Sean. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Being consistent and creating adaptations. Like that's, I think to me, that's pretty much the equation that I live by because that's what's going to happen. That's what needs to happen. As far as, you know, relevancy with, you know, workouts go. And, and this is why I keep it basic. You know, what you guys are talking about, if we don't have a, a diagram of what we're working off of. Like if somebody consistently switches to workouts all the time, we have no idea what's working or even if they are progressing. And that's kind of like where I, I feel that a lot of clients like to see, like what you want to see your numbers go up, what you want to see things progress. And at the same time, when I deal with like my endurance riders and stuff and I deal with, with endurance, I don't really program design them too much. Cause that's not really my wheelhouse, but I do a lot of nutrition stuff with them. And you know what you're saying, like Sean is, I need them to eat consistently and I need them to eat right as far as quality goes before anything else changes. Those are worried about when do I slam this goo or when do I take this or when do I drink that? I'm like, wait a second. Like, let's get you metabolically functioning correctly to where your body can be transparent between the systems first. And then we'll start worrying about your race nutrition. And I feel like that's where a lot of, and I call them weekend warriors because, you know, they generally, they don't live it and breathe it, but they want to do that consistently. And that's what they do. They're, they're drinking and they're eating like shit. And then all of a sudden on the weekends, they're so worried about what the race looks like. And I'm like, if we could just balance you out during the week. That as far as the race goes, you're going to be way off and you're going to be rocking and rolling in the race. You wouldn't have to worry about all that other stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too. And I think like, I think you're right on. I think there's the majority of people out there, they could make some, some changes outside of the competition themselves that are almost indirectly related to the activity at hand and, and see big changes just because they've got that side of things kind of figured out and, and they're addressing it by just making some good solid lifestyle changes in general. And where, where I kind of find it interesting too, and you know, I, 
we, Sean and I get to look at this world a little bit just by the, by the nature of, you know, Sean's diet specifically is like, you'll, you'll see people who were like, you know, very unhealthy for a large portion or a portion of their life. And then they regain back a ton of their health by just making a simple lifestyle change by deciding to eat differently. And then they they get to a kind of a point where I think they're at this, this spot where do I just keep doing it this way or do I try something slightly different to try to find a little bit more of an improvement or like what's the next step after that, after they kind of have those fundamentals or those foundation pieces in place. Without a doubt. Yeah. And I think, you know, what we're kind of talking about and I feel like dealing with so much fluctuation within clients and trying to convince them, I have changed my, my methodology and I have actually started really focusing on the menopausal side of things, the menopause, andropause, so the later stages in life. And now I'm actually, you know, starting to write papers and producing. I'm actually doing my dissertation on menopausal women. And I spend a ton of focus on pubescent, you know, males or females in that athletic world because I feel like if I can grasp them when they're younger and teach them the right pathways of what they should and shouldn't do, I'm essentially changing the world in that sense. And then at the end where they're a little bit harder to deal with because, you know, at that age, you're generally stuck in your ways. But if I can unwind some of that stuff and prevent some, you know, nasty diseases that happen to us later in life, you know, that's a win as well. Kind of that middle of the road, I, I let go a little bit just because I kind of felt like I was just talking to thin air for the most time and this wasn't really doing much for me. Yeah. You know, that brings up a few cool questions. I think like when you are working with someone who is like, say going through menopause, what are a couple, a couple things that are like pretty routine that you recommend them change or do differently than what they would have otherwise? Oh man, that's, that's a loaded question. That's a great <laughs> question. Um, ideally, you know, everybody's going to be a little bit different. So I look at them in a full scope. I look at them, what, the, what they have been doing pretty much for the last 25 years and kind of see where they're at. I, I have to look at labs cause I'd love to see where they're at hormonally, um, especially for, you know, anybody at that age, you don't know where they are quite suppression of whether it's estradiol or testosterone or what I'm looking at. So I, I try to first gravitate that full picture. And then I look at their lifestyle. You know, are they one that's training consistently? Are they sleeping great? Um, you know, how many vasomotor symptoms are they currently having? Are they having, you know, hot flashes here and there? So I gravitate that whole situation and then I induce, you know, very small, kind of just what we've been talking about. I, I induce very small achievable goals, you know, and it might even be something simple of like a lot of the times I get clients who haven't really been moving and then they go to the doctor, they get a DEXA scan and they realize, you know, they have some sort of osteopenia or there's some sort of suppression in bone health. And then they're freaking out. They're like, holy shit, Tony, what am I going to do? You know, then I try to like implement certain minerals that are going to be beneficial for that. And then just little movements like walking to start. And then we start progressing there up. Because ideally to me, I, I itemize what is the worst situation that that person's going to have happen to them. And to me, I think osteoporosis is by far one of the worst. And then I, you know, I look at other disease markers as well, but that's usually it. And if they're not on hormone replacement therapy, it's a little bit more difficult to try to gain that back. But I try to get as much as I can via nutrition but to be honest with you, man, I mean, one of the hardest things that I, I have to try to battle with somebody that later stage in, you know, in their life is, you know, if you've done something a certain way, and I'll just use the, the realm 50 years old, because that's kind of like the biomarker for menopause. 
if you have done something for 50 years, you know how hard that is to change, like a certain pathway of like, you know, especially if it's something like, um, you know, you know, and I'm just, you know, speculating, I'm just using this example, but say a certain woman likes to have glasses of wine on Friday and Saturday, which is kind of common. And I'm trying to say, hey, look, these wine, this wine is going to do X, Y, and Z to your body. You need to recant this. Like, that's a very hard conversation to have. But it's, I try to use a little bit of science more in that realm and say, look, if you can reduce this, this could be our probability. But if you don't, this is going to be a probability. This isn't going to happen. So I try to integrate a little bit of science and I don't try to use the scare tactic, but I try to use like a reality factor. Like, Hey, look, if you don't start moving, if you don't start creating tension on those bones, you're never going to regenerate anything. And, you know, I show a picture of what osteoporosis looks like. I'm like, this, this could be you. And a lot of the times it's kind of like a scare tactic, but it's not, but it's like a reality check. It works. And then I start getting people to kind of be a little bit more compliant, but yeah, as far as like, I don't really have a directive go-to. I don't have like a set plan. So I, I kind of see the big picture and then I attack on what's what I feel is necessary or most important. Yeah, you know, it is interesting too, because like, I think as humans, one thing that we struggle with is when you're dealing with something that is like a slow moving problem that will eventually manifest way down the road, it's very hard to really, you know, break a bad habit when it may be an issue in 20 years. But then you get the situation where like, you know, you have the data to show, hey, this is where you're at now. And the next step is something that you would have to have massive changes in your lifestyle if this occurs. You know, the people start kind of waking up a little bit at that point sometimes, I think, and they're willing to make some adjustments that they maybe otherwise weren't when they were younger. No, without a doubt. And you just brought up a great point because this is something I battle continuously. I started a Facebook group called Embrace the Change. And it's just for women. And a lot of the women that I had invited over the past might've been like, you know, 30, 35 years old. And a lot of the replies I get are like, you know, I'm 30 years old, you know, go F yourself. And (laughs) it's funny, but to me, but you know, my response to that, I said, I said, you're right. The probability of you getting menopause is slim to none unless you have some sort of other things. And I tried to tell them, I'm like, but the information that I'm providing on this page is stuff that will make the transition most likely easier for you. And it's stuff that you're going to need to know. Like, look, there's things as guys that we're probably never going to, we're never going to avoid suppression of testosterone unless we get it exogenously. We're most likely never going to avoid prostate cancer. You know, whether we're dead or alive, we're definitely going to get that eventually. And then other things like women, you're not going to avoid menopause. So we need to educate ourselves now. So when we do get to that time, we know what we should be doing as opposed to, you know, asking a million questions and trying to unpack or unwind something that most likely is going to be almost too difficult to do. So that's where we're at with that. So I don't really have a direct answer. I'm sorry. I kind of just beat around the bush a lot there, but I don't really have a direct answer. Ideally, if I had to give you one direct answer, what I would tell a woman going into menopause is make sure you're resisting training, make sure you're loading the body. So you're creating an adaptation, you're creating a reason for your body to say, okay, we need to make sure that we have strong bones. And as well as then on the other side of things, my nutrition side, I'm going to say, make sure you have ample calcium, make sure you have ample vitamin D, make sure you're intaking enough protein to create these metabolic processes to happen internally. Yeah. And I think you maybe even answered my question to a degree when you said like you start to learn a lot once you get their labs and you encourage them to kind of figure out kind of where they're starting from. And then that gives you a little more of a, of a roadmap, so to speak, as to like what maybe are some dietary interventions or exercise interventions that would be beneficial for each individual. 
Yeah. And, you know, sufficiently, I, I, I try to tell them, make sure you're eating your vegetables. And I think protein, protein has, I, I kind of feel like it gets, sometimes it gets a bad rap from overconsumption, which I find it very hard for a woman to do. So that's like usually my primary go-to. I, I don't really focus too much on making sure they're eating carbohydrates or, you know, fats. But I say, make sure you're getting a sufficient amount of protein because at that, you know, when I'm looking at osteoporosis, I'm looking at protein. And if there's other health issues, like, you know, if there's any kind of like cardiovascular disease, biomarkers there or something going on there, then obviously I would start creating other things like carbohydrates and, you know, reduction of fats or whatever it might be. But that's usually I focus on. And I, I, I'm a big micronutrient kind of guy. And I feel like, you know, with the quality of our vegetables these days, it's very important to make sure that we're getting enough of that. So I do a lot of metabolic testing when it comes to regards to, um, you know, what, what our micronutrient content in our bodies are at. What are some of the micronutrients that you're seeing people more or less consistently coming in and having to kind of work back up? Are there some that are like more kind of chronically issue as like a society as a whole? Yeah, without a doubt, you know, surprisingly, I am seeing more and more vitamin D deficiencies, which it kind of blows my mind a little bit because ideally, I feel like it's spoken about continuously in all the literature. It's, it's all over the place. Now, I don't think I pull a paper up without vitamin D in it, and it's correlating with everything else being, you know, the type of hormone it is. But I see vitamin D very, very, not very low. I see it usually somewhere around 20 to 30 on labs, um, which, you know, and this is kind of subjective because we haven't pinpointed it yet. But ideally, optimum-wise, you want it around 50. And I've kind of seen it back and forth. In, in normal labs, 30 to 60 is the range. Uh, but when I'm looking, I always look at things in a sense of like optimal performance kind of thing. I don't really look at just basic labs. I'm not a doctor, by the way. So um, don't hold me to that. That's just for, that's who I am and what I look at. And that's just kind of what the literature has been telling me. But yeah, I look at that and I look at calcium as well. And then I also look at the electrolytes. I see what, you know, sodium, potassium is doing, phosphorus, especially phosphorus. That's kind of another underlooked, you know, mineral that's out there. Did that answer your question? Yeah, no, I think. I, I just, <laughs> sometimes sometimes yeah. I, you know, there's so much going on, I just start spinning and I kind of forget what I was even talking about because I'm just going on and on. Yeah, no, I mean, I just find it interesting too, like what, what things that are more or less a uh, a, a uni I want to say universal, but closer to a universal issue. Is there like, cause that kind of pinpoints a bit of like, well, what are we doing wrong as a whole group versus at the individual level? And, you know, vitamin D is an interesting one. Cause I do think like you, you see a lot of marketing behind that. Um, so I wonder even if there's just, if there's something about the bioavailability of a lot of the vitamin D sources that people are taking in versus getting it by just being out in the sun or something like that too, or if they're eating it, in combination or not in combination with the right things? Yeah. I don't really know. I, you know, I, I honestly, I hate to say this, but I, I definitely feel like the way we are as a society, uh, um, tongue tied here, the way we are, I feel like it, there's a lot of money driven with a lot of things being promoted, which is kind of scary to me. And, you know, our industry as a whole, it, it's a, multi-billion dollar industry. So I don't know if that's the case. And I, I definitely feel like you can get a substantial amount of vitamin D via the sun. But I also feel like with the scare of skin cancer that's put out there, that people are afraid to do so. So they don't really know what that balance is. But if you look at a lot of studies for, you know, 
like I looked at, I just read a study the other day about Ecuadorians and their vitamin D suppression. Well, there isn't any. And if you look at their rate of skin cancer, it's extremely low. So at what point should we be scared of the sun? At what point should we get in the sun more? So with us over here on the East Coast, you know, we deal with a lot of months without sun. So it's a little bit harder for us. With, with that, I always tell, and I'm very proud of this, in the winter months, you know, we just got over summer and it's going to, you know, sun's going to start setting a little bit early for us soon. I always say a thousand I use a day. You know, it's hard to overdo vitamin D. And, you know, on the other retrospect of that, you know, finding a good source, you got to find a credible source that's certified through NSF or one of the third party sourcing companies to know that what you're taking is actually in there. And I think that's, that's really all we can do. Other than that, like, you know, there's not much because we know we're, we're always going to, there's always going to be something out there that's going to do something to us, you know, positive or negative. So yeah, let, me, let me just throw my, my two cents in here to be able to two, two uh, sort of contradictory, but there is, you know, there's some controversy about what is an adequate vitamin D dose. I mean, there's different, there's endocrine society, there's uh, the vitamin D society, which has the highest number. They look at, I think it's 40 and I can't remember the units on there, maybe nanograms per deciliter. I'm not sure that I'd have to remember that, but, but, and then some people even down as 20, I think it's IOM or somebody wants even at, even at 20. And so it, it, it depends on who you're talking about, about vitamin D. And I know there was a big controversy about one of the major vitamin D supplement proponent physicians was con- caught basically fudging data and, and trying to drive vitamin D supplement sales. We know that vitamin D supplementation in the literature has not been particularly successful, not only in not raising vitamin D levels, but also maybe the, the clinical things that we think were correlated with that. Um, one of the things we see with regard to sun exposure, and, and I would argue, and I think many people would, would make the same argument, that, I mean, human beings are designed to be out in the sun. I mean, we, we evolved basically under an equatorial sun. And it wasn't like we were smearing SPF 50 all over our bodies at one time. So we're designed to, you know, spend many hours in the sun. And I think that, uh, you know, some of the other factors, and we've had guys like Tucker Goodrich on there talking about maybe some of the fact that we're consuming copious amounts of seed oil, and that has uh, problems with uh, reacting with the sun, causing, causing issues. And so it may be the case. I know for myself, my sun tolerance has gone up incredibly high compared to what it was five years ago when I would, you know, I'd get out for an hour and I'd be burned and now I can spend three, four, five, six hours in the sun and, and have a nice tan. And so I think there's differences there. Also, we look at some of like melanoma rates, you know, melanoma is the, the skin cancer that people actually die from. No real correlation. In fact, people that are, that are in lower sunlight areas have higher melanoma uh, 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 incidents. And so I think we have to rethink the sun exposure, think, rethink the vitamin D thing. I know that uh, the other thing most people don't realize is vitamin D is a very diurnally variable uh, uh, hormone or vitamin, depending on how you want to describe it. But we see that if you look at someone's vitamin D at 7 a.m., it's likely to be 30% higher at 2 p.m. And so it depends on the time of the day you draw. We also know the time of the year. And so, again, if you draw it in January, it's going to be lower than if you draw it in you know, June. And so sun exposure will have some effect on there, but also, and, and we talked about the sourcing. I think there's different variations of vitamin D. I mean, most people will say that, you know, the vitamin D that comes from an animal source is, is more appropriate for what we're supposed to get from compared to other sources of vitamin D. And so I think there's a lot of things we have to realize. You know, one of the interesting things I look at, because obviously I, I pursue a carnivorous diet. So I've, 
looked at a lot of the research on folks like Inuit, and one of the things we saw with Inuit was that their vitamin D levels were low, as were their vitamin A and vitamin E levels. Uh, and most people say, well, that, that clinically would be a problem. However, even despite having low serum vitamin D levels, they had no clinical issues. And the issues at, at that time were, were rickets. I mean, that's, that's the vitamin D deficiency issue. And so in Inuit populations, despite having low, low levels of serum vitamin D, they had no clinical symptoms whatsoever of vitamin D deficiency. But when you added potatoes and flour and canned foods to their diet, all of a sudden, these same people started coming down with rickets because of low vitamin D. And so yeah. it's, I think it's, it's much more complicated and more nuanced than, than we think uh, uh, that, it, that it is. And I think we're discovering that with these wacko people that are giving up vegetables and just eating meat and getting their labs and saying, wait a minute, nothing's going on clinically. And maybe their labs are different, maybe they're not. So I think, I think the problem we have is we've got these assumptions that we assume hold up for all people in all situations. And it appears they don't. And so I, I, I always, I, despite, you know, my appreciation for science and, and labs and, and modern medicine, I, I always defer to what's going on clinically. You know, when you talk about what are we measuring objectively, and if you've got a, a client and, you know, whatever their goal is, and say their goal is to lose 50 pounds and get in shape, or, or a guy that wants to put 100 pounds on his deadlift, and we're caught up in the weeds of measuring whether his vitamin D went from 27 to 36 and he made no progress on his deadlift. I'm like, well, that's, you know, maybe that's not a goal worth worthy, uh, worthy looking at. And so maybe we should focus on keeping the, the relevant goals, the goal. And that's, and that's kind of how I operate. But anyway, that's just a, my, 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 myself being a little bit contradictory, which I, I tend to do with a lot of things. <laughs> no, Sean, and I appreciate it. And that's, and I love that you do that because that should be the world today. And I feel like there's a lot of people that are afraid to speak their mind or, you know, talk about who they really are. And I agree with you. I feel like they haven't figured out vitamin D and that's why kind of when I was talking about, you know, optimal levels, I say my, because that's what I've come up with the conclusion and they don't know, they don't know what's too much. They don't know what's too little. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things out there and, you know, and the reality is it's, majority of it's all subjective. It's, you know, there's nothing yet set in stone. And, you know, I think a hundred percent right on the sense of what is the person gold? You know, what are they really there for? Why are they even doing the lab work? So I agree with you, dude. And I appreciate you saying that because that's how it should be. Zach, you got anything on that? <laughs> Zach, I don't oh, know. Zach, Zach, Zach stays <laughs> out of this stuff a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I just, yeah, for, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting. I like uh, looking at the variety of different things people are doing for for all sorts of different reasons. But, I mean, my main focus at the moment is is performance based. So my compass and like what I'm eating and what I'm doing on my day to day life usually revolves around around that for the most part. So I let kind of the I let my workouts be the guide. So I have a pretty deep foundation of different workouts and what intensities feel like what. And, you know, where my fitness can get to when I give it the opportunity and stuff like that. So, you know, making small changes and things under like the context of that, you know, I can get a, a decent look in my opinion as to like whether something is going to make me faster, slower or otherwise. And you know, that's usually what guides me the most. Uh, and that's just the way I like to do it for myself. And then, you know, other people are other people. So it's like, you know, you, to a degree, you just listen to what they say and say, okay, if that works for you, it works for you. But, um, 
I think results are kind of a good guiding guiding principle for, for most cases. Yeah. Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it, and I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too because it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift, um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter and, you know, I pulled over 700 pounds and I know when I use this big orange band, it, uh, it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel, for sure. It's a good, uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people. And I think a lot of people can use it as a primary uh, training tool, depending upon what the goals are. But I think the key I found is you've got to use it as designed, and that includes uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. It definitely gets your heart rate up, even though even things like bicep curls, I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a uh, poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. Hey, Tony, let's go back to your research because I I think, you know, I want to see, you know, you said you're doing some research on... I guess, perimenopausal type stuff. So what are you, what are you actually looking at? So we can kind of maybe learn something a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what now I've been diving in real deep as far as looking at correlating factors of what type of training. And right now I'm looking at the difference between strength training and hypertrophy training. Um, and for those who don't know the difference, a strength training base is usually around five reps or less. And you're somewhere around 80% of your one rep max. That's strength training. And for hypertrophy training, you know, you're generally around that 10 rep-ish, 10 to 15, and you're loading somewhere around 70% of your RM, of your one rep max. Um, they kind of give you like a generic for whoever's listening that don't understand the difference between training methods. And I'm looking at that in correlation with uh, premenopausal, perimenopausal women into postmenopause and see how that's a correlating factor, if it even is a correlating factor, on osteoporosis and testosterone regulation. So I'm trying to look at that one biomarker of testosterone and I'm seeing if it increases or decreases bone health. And I mean, I'm on like, I'm on paper 60 something of like 200 and something. There's, There's actually a pretty good amount of literature out there as far as, you know, weight training with menopausal women. And what I've concluded thus far between you know, consistently that hypertrophy training is, seems to be so far. And I, I don't want to like get ahead of myself yet because I'm still digging, but right now as it stands within like six something papers in that it seems to be the better route for a menopausal women. And I think what I've grasped so far between that one, if they are on you know, hormone replacement therapy, I think it's more beneficial for them because it's regenerating and stimulating things in a faster sense, as opposed to them not. Because if you're not on hormone replacement therapy and hormone replacement therapy, it could be exogenous testosterone. It could be on small dose, you know, estrogen, which is just birth control. It could be on some sort of progesterone. Um, And if they're not on that, I've seen that it's been very hard for women to re-stimulate and or get any kind of bone growth. 
So I haven't seen any literature significantly showing that strength training and hypertrophy does that. And that's why I've been kind of a big proprietor of, you know, women at that age going on hormone replacement therapy, because I'm looking in the literature and seeing, I'm like, oh man. So there are a lot of stimulating benefits of doing so. And it doesn't mean much, um, you know, small dose estrogen. If that's the only thing that you did was showing wonders within the body. And it also, you know, speaking of vitamin D, it also was showing uh, a good amount of, you know, between vitamin D and calcium uptake too, which was regenerating bone. So all, all that good stuff there. And that's kind of where I'm, I'm at so far with that. And I'm just trying to decipher. So when I'm giving information to menopausal women, what is the best way? What is the best program for them? And right now, as it looks, it looks like hypertrophy training program. Yeah, we had uh, both John Jakish and then Keith Barr, both professors uh, that have discussed some of the bone density stuff. And, and obviously that's a uh, significant issue for women. Uh, mm-hmm. and I've, I've seen that on the, on the extreme men when I've taken care of little old ladies with hip fractures and, you know, even in men too, but more so women. But one of the things they had talked about was impact, you know, and, and that would be basically jumping, you know, and so mm-hmm. some of the bone seems to stimulate, be stimulated very well by, you know, basically max effort jumps, you know, jumping in place and, and, and not that many times, maybe 10 times. And, and that, that seems to be significantly beneficial for for bone growth i think it's in the uh, femoral neck and i don't know if they look at it in the spine but so that's something that you know you may delve into some of that research to see if that that also has a has a role but i i would agree that uh um and you're saying hypertrophy rather than strength training it seems to be more beneficial or or yeah and i i think right now i hypothesize on that and i i think it's because the time under tension is greater and if we're looking at the respect to that the intensity is lower. The time on the tension is a little bit greater, but in, in theory to what you're talking about, the jumping. Yes. So I've actually read a lot of the papers and I don't input them in mind cause it's a little bit different, but I've come across a lot of the literature that was even stimulating and saying that even tension, and this was in reference to like a Pilates type workout, even tension was stimulating bone growth in there or stimulating a reason for bone growth. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you know, bone is strongest in compression, you know, and weakest in in basically uh, shear and rotation, basically, is where we see so many low-level, low-energy fractures and people rotate around and stuff. Um, It's interesting because, you know, when we we look at markers of longevity, and, you know, I I think there's a number, and this is one of the reasons personally, like when I design training programs and stuff for that, I tend to include both things in there. Because I think when we look at markers of longevity, we see that strength rather than muscle size, you know, seems to have to confer the longevity benefit, you know, and and again, at the end of the day, my eyes kind of glaze over a little bit when people start talking about longevity, because I think it's more mysticism and religion and fantasy than, than anything. You know, my, my answer has always been when I see, you know, some Jack dudes rocking around at 120 still functioning very well, then I'll start taking some of the longevity uh, you know, gurus more seriously. But right now, these people that are telling me they're going to live to be 180 because they take 300 supplement pills and, you know, wear blue blockers. I mean, I just, I just, you know, that stuff just doesn't really, you know, yeah. impress me that much. But I, but I do think that, um, you know, strength training, hypertrophy work, jumping, all of those things. I, mean, I think you should do it all. I mean, I think, I think we look about like what, what a young animal does or a young child is able to do. You know, they get up, they run, they play, they jump, they flip around, they pick things up, they, you know, they deal with things. 
they're young. And, and I think the longer you manage to do all of those things, and I think it's a component of conditioning, running, you know, what Zach does. I mean, I don't think yeah. you need to be doing hundred mile runs on the weekend, but <laughs> no, you don't, <laughs> but I mean, or, or, or what I'm doing, you know, doing 500 pound deadlifts or reps, but I mean, I think there's, there's some component of all of it that I think is important. So I think at the end of the day, we'll, we may see that. And I think there'll be people that have their own sort of, sort of camps on what you do, but it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, discussion anyway. I don't, I don't disagree with you one bit, but in the, in, in retrospect to, and then again, it has to be down to who the person is, right? So if a woman comes to you at, at 50 years old and she hasn't been doing anything, you know, ideally you're probably not going to put her into a strength training protocol just due to the sense of that she probably doesn't have any stability. She doesn't have the, you know, the know-how just yet. So I think, and that might be a good longevity study. Start off with a woman in an hypertrophy phase, uh, hypertrophy phase doing plyometrics and then all of a sudden progressively go into a functional hypertrophy into a strength training program and see how it works and see what the benefit of it is. And, you know, I, I think that would be some really good information to come up and how do we phase that? You know, what, what does it look like? So I think you kind of just created something for me to really dig into. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I th well, I think when you describe that, you know, that typical woman – I won't say typical, but I mean, a very common, and I would see this in orthopedic practice, you know, I'd see these women in their early mid fifties, it would be, you know, BMI of 38, 42 and 40, 50 pounds overweight. They've never really done any activity whatsoever. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, their, their dietary advice, their whole life has been, you know, eat a, eat a salad and whole grains and uh, a little sliver of chicken and 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 that hasn't worked out very well for them whether they did it or not or whether they could sustain it or not it doesn't really matter at the end of the day the advice didn't work and and none of them have engaged in any kind of strength training at all i mean most of them it's it's you know strength training is you know the, the thing of men and uh, women mm -hmm. shouldn't do that and, and fortunately we've got some great examples of women out there that are changing that paradigm whether it's you know, in, in all aspects of athletics, you know, and, and, but I think strength training is, 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 is incredibly important. I think that's, an, that's a, you know, a sentiment that can't be overstated or over, you know, repeated to the women out there is, you know, we should yeah. be, we should be getting stronger and, and, and a strong woman in my view is a beautiful woman and a sexy woman and, and a healthy woman. And I think that's what, uh, you know, we should continue to do that. And, and honestly, in my bet, my take is, eat a couple damn steaks too while you're at it. You know, I think that's, <laughs> that's where I go with this. Uh, every vegan and vegetarian just fainted right there. Oh, um, don't let them know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know what, dude, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. In the reality, if, if and I'm going back to science-based stuff in, I'm going to say, man, it, it's so substantial exercise in itself is medicine to me. And in the literature, it says the same. Resistant training cannot, if, if, I could, if I could talk to every woman and man on this planet right now, I think every single person needs resistance training. I think even more so endurance athletes need resistance training. It's so important for the body and so many mechanisms that we could, we could do 10 hours talk of just how important exercise is for your body. So if I could stress to you enough, you know, resistance training is key. And if I could stress to you again, as far as doing it right, not watching a video off of Instagram and then all of a sudden going to the gym and doing it, please talk to a professional and kind of get a good guidance on what you should be doing. Because I think the stigma of where, and this is me speculating 100%, the stigma of where women got intimidated by that fact was one, they're afraid to get big and bulky. 
which I've been trying to get big and bulky for 20 years and I still haven't done it. And I know what I'm doing. Um, the, the stigma of getting big and bulky is out there and that doesn't happen for women. It, it's too hard. Um, some women can, if that's what they want to do. And the idea of being afraid of deadlifts, being afraid of squats. Yes. If you do something improperly, you will get hurt. If you do it properly, the probability of you getting hurt is, is pretty much stimulated to almost zero. So it's about doing things right way. That yeah, and that's, that's an awesome topic. And I think it's, it's probably worth jumping into a bit too. Cause I think like, when I think of endurance athletes, you know, the, the bone related issues that I see pop up fairly routinely is stress fractures. And to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think like if I go out and do something stupid and break my leg, like that's kind of an acute thing that maybe was just a reality of my decision. No amount of strength training and healthy nutrition could have prevented that. But if I develop a stress fracture or maybe not a single stress fracture over the course of a career, but like have that kind of issue pop up from time to time throughout the course of my career, or maybe it ends my career or something like that. To me, that tells me I'm doing something wrong chronically day in and day out to get to that point. Because for one, you know, when you're running, you're doing these tiny little impacts over and over again, and your body's probably going to do a fairly good job of limiting how much of that you can do in the early stages so that you're not out there getting yourself a stress fracture by doing too much running right in the beginning. Although some people probably can and do do that, but I don't think that's necessarily the, the, the main cause of something like that. So do you like, like, what do you see? Is there some things that you see maybe that endurance athletes are avoiding? Maybe it is the gym work. Um, and it's out of, I, I think personally, it's a combination of, the mindset of gym work within the endurance community, because like you said, and this may plague the female population a little more historically anyhow, is that, oh, I'm an endurance athlete. I need to balance this ideal power weight ratio. If I go into the gym and touch a weight, I'm going to get too bulky. It's going to slow me down. So not touching a weight. And then they look at protein the same way. If I eat too much protein, I'm going to get big and bulky and then I'm going to be slower. So it's almost like hitting them from two angles, then they're not getting enough protein and they're not doing the activity that would strengthen their bones in the first place. Uh, dude. Yeah. Without a doubt. But we'll talk about the endurance athletes. Cause I, I see that continuously, but it's the same. It's in the same retrospect of all athletes, right? For like gym going guys who are power lifters, how many times you've walked into a gym and you actually seen power lifters spend 20 minutes warming up and, getting ready for their lift and then they spend 20 minutes after it's very rare this is much as you see in an endurance athlete weight training i feel like it's rare because we're so focused like you know back in my heyday before i realized stretching actually made sense or actually warming up made sense i would go into the gym crush weights and then leave but now i i account for that time like with an endurance athlete they're running they're swimming they're biking they don't account for the time to actually say, oh, shit, I need to add some, you know, resistance training in there. So I think that that plays into it a little bit because it's just a whole nother aspect of, you know, involving a different type of training. And I definitely think it's mentality. I have seen, you know, this is not science. This is just me. I have seen the benefits of resistance training. It takes time. You know, if you start increasing mass on a body, you know, they're worried about their power output ratio. But the body is very smart. And we're talking about adapting. The body is way smarter than we are. So if they start increasing that mass, their body will create enough hemoglobin, enough oxygen carrying capacity to create that and move your body efficiently within time. 
So as you're creating that mass in your resistance training and they're still doing all their endurance work, they, they usually don't, they might suppress it a little bit. You know, if they're riding a hundred miles, I'll say, you know, break it down to 80 because our energy expenditure is going to be a little bit too high because they usually don't eat enough to balance all that out. So I'll reduce a little bit, but as long as they're integrating a lot of those same things that they were doing, incorporating resistance training, what I've noticed when I retest their VO2 max, I've either seen it stay the same or get a little bit better. So if I could tell you if you're an endurance trainer, as long as you're patient enough to wait for that transition to happen, resistance training will not inhibit production as far as, you know, your rides go or your runs go or your swims go. And I've seen that firsthand. And that's not me saying what's in the literature. That's me saying what I've seen. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very productive. Yeah. And do you think like with endurance athletes too, given kind of the nature of what you described, like picking up a protocol kind of in their off season is a good spot to start while their, their, their recovery, their recovery from the endurance side of their lifestyle is kind of the, the primary guiding principle versus trying to peak for a specific event. Oh, hundred percent. That's, that's a great point. Yeah. And absolutely. Because if your body's generically used to running aerobically and that's what your body is used to recovering from. If you go to an anaerobic set where like, say you've never pushed a sled before, if you go push a sled, you're going to get crushed. <laughs> so doing that within the season is, I think is bad news bears, but yes, off season to understand what it feels like to see kind of what your push is or what it needs to be. And then you kind of adjust to it, let your body adjust. I think is the best way to do it. Absolutely. Awesome. I think that'll, all be good information for our endurance athlete listeners out there. <laughs> Sean, you got anything on that? Um, no, I don't know that I want to add too much to that. I mean, that's good. That's a pretty good discussion there, but um, I'm just, uh, so let me ask you a little bit more specifically. Cause you're, I mean, you're, I guess you're in the middle of doing a PhD and you're also doing client sort of consulting work and stuff. What is, uh, what are you sort of typically doing with folks as far as, uh, you know, how, when they come to you, what do you, what are you, what are you providing for them at this time? You know, I, I would like to call myself kind of like a diagnostic kind of guy. Um, so ideally I have clients in the morning and I, I train a lot of younger athletes now. And then, you know, depending on who it is, if it's an adult, you know, it depends on what their goals are. So a lot of the times, if it's somebody who needs like a full, like they just want to regenerate, recreate everything. Um, I'll pull labs for them. I'll look over their meal plans. I try not to, because in the state of Maryland, it's very restrictive. You can't write meal plans unless you're a registered dietitian, which I'm not. So I don't necessarily write descriptive meal plans, but I do give a lot of suggestions on what they should and shouldn't do. And going back to our conversation earlier about, you know, people following guidelines and stuff like that. I try not to do too much with that in a sense of just making sure they're getting what their body actually needs for the amount of energy they're expenditing, especially when they're, you know, an athlete of some sort. So I like to really figure out what's wrong with people and why they're even there to begin with. A lot of things I find nowadays is a lot of GI distress. So I'll run, you know, different tests and try to figure out what's going on in that sense. Um, and I do write a lot of programs too. Um, I have a vast background in, you know, exercise science. So, I do a lot of that. So I don't want to say I'm the best at everything. I'd probably say I'm the best at understanding nutrition and biology of the body. So I kind of get how the systems work. I, I study a lot on metabolic process. So I, I see where things integrate with each other. 
But, you know, with that being said, I refer a lot of people out too because I know I can't be at all. So I don't know if that actually answered your question. Did that, Sean? No, I mean, that's fair enough. I mean, uh, I think that's, uh, you know, you just kind of see what see what's going on out there. Um, have you seen anything recently, any disturbing trends out there as far as uh, diet or, or exercise stuff that makes you scratch your head? I mean, I see some of the, you know, we live in a kind of sort of an Instagram social media world. And I see people just doing just stupid stuff. I mean, quite honestly, you know, some of the, like some of the routines I see people doing workout wise, I'm just like, this just, you know, it's, it's more just a, you know, I don't even know. I mean, the point is to show somebody's butt off or something like that. It's like, it's like, what the hell are you even doing? But I mean, what are you seeing out there as far as either from a nutritional strategy uh, or, and, and I and believe me, I've got my, my own pet peeves, but I'd like to hear yours. And, and yeah, maybe, no, maybe that, that was. yeah, that's great. And, and again, I'm going to say this lightly and I don't mean to offend anybody. Um, so why I started training pubescent um, teenagers, I'll use teenagers. Why I started even training teenagers is I was getting a lot of, you know, chatter from different parents about, I'm like, Oh, where's your kids training now? They're like, Oh, we're doing CrossFit training. No offense against CrossFit. I, I think everything has its place. And what I was, and I was trying to understand, I'm like, well, why are kids that have no neurological, no proprioceptive function just yet jumping into overhead movements and bilateral things when I feel like their bodies aren't, you know, they're not ready for that yet. And I know from experience for myself, I was a boxer, I was a wrestler, I started weight training earlier and I was weight training and I did not know what I was doing. And then by the time I was in my mid twenties, my elbows are shit, my shoulders always hurt, my knees hurt and here I am at 36 and I probably got a 55 year old body. But that was from my mistakes of not knowing how. So one thing I've, to answer the question is that one thing I've seen were kids at an early age were not training correctly or not being integrated into training correctly. So that was one thing that I'm doing personally trying to change is, you know, actually properly training a kid. So when they get to their twenties and they, you know, they actually start picking things up that they're not getting hurt or injured. Um, and then nutritionally wise, man, if I have to talk about uh, fasting and ketogenic diets anymore and, you know, and I'm not against those type of diets. I just feel like, the probability of you completing or you staying on that type of regimen, I think is very hard. And I'm a big proprietor about balance. And I think that's what it should be. It should be, you should eat for what you're trying to accomplish at that time. And, you know, if you're an endurance athlete, eat like an endurance athlete. If you're a power lifter, eat like a power lifter. If you want to lose weight, well, you're going to have to reduce some calories. So I think that's really it. And um, I'm sure you guys have other things that you've come across, but those are kind of like my main points that I continuously fight against. And uh, it's not like I'm against them. I just, it's just what I have to recant sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I think there's, there's certainly some validity in that. I mean, I think that if you look at, I mean, and, and people like to, for whatever reason, hold bodybuilders up as the pinnacle of health. And I, and I think there's some serious flaws in doing that because, mm-hmm. you know, many of those guys are doing things that are not, particularly healthy they're taking a lot of drugs and they're 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 you know restricting their input so much to get contests ready but i mean let's just assume that they can teach us a few things about how to get lean because i think a bodybuilder can tell you how to get lean i mean they're pretty damn good at it right so they know that so there's things we can utilize um you know i've got we've got the world record holder zach he just won he's just he's the fastest man in the world over 100 miles so when you talk about what does an endurance athlete eat like well, Zach would tell you something very different than Scott Jurek would. And, and so, I mean, I, I don't, 
I have to say that, you know, it depends on who you're talking. I mean, a power lifter, yeah, you got to eat a lot of calories if you're going to power lift. I mean, you know, assuming you're not in a super lightweight category. But, I mean, for most most people, when we think about power lifting, we're thinking about the big guys. We're not thinking about the, you know, 114 women. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think there is there is some variety there. I mean, obviously, I think power lifters are going to need more protein than the average Joe, but so is Zach. I mean, Zach's going to need more protein than the average Joe because he's an endurance athlete. So, I think we, we, we sort of uh, – you know, have to realize that there is some variation and different people are making different diets work. I mean, I'll let Zach comment on, you know, his thoughts on how he performs as, as an endurance athlete and you can hear what his, his thoughts are. Yeah. You know, I think really one of the biggest, uh, I don't know if it's an issue as much as it just is like a lot of people kind of chiming in about a very, very wide ranging like label. Like when we say, this is the, what I always kind of come up with is, you know, you'll go on Twitter and you'll have people debating like, you know, how many carbs do you need to be, do you need carbs for endurance? Do you need carbs for performance? All these kind of like questions that are very, very big open-ended questions. So then I think it really, in order to get any value out of those type of discussions, you have to start to kind of dig as far down into the bedrock of what exactly we're talking about. It's like, are we talking about a 1500 meter race or are we talking about a hundred mile race? Because those are both in the umbrella of endurance, but they're, they're, they're completely different systems at the race day itself. And they're different training protocols, different ways of periodizing for them and all sorts of things. So like what I find out oftentimes happens, like I follow, I guess if you're going to put a label on what I do, it's, it's high fat, low carb. Um, where it gets confusing is then that gets kind of spun into keto. And then if someone looks into what keto is, they see a label of 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrates per day. And then they assume I'm eating 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrates a day. And it's like, you can find days during the year where that is what I am eating, but you can find days during the year where I'm, you know, north of 200 grams of carbohydrate a day as well. So like when you start to kind of piece together everything, like, well, what is my goal race intensity for me? It's typically hundred miles events that, you know, are between low 11 hours up to 17 and a half hours, depending on which event I'm doing. Uh, you know, that's a long time out there. And I'm, I'm very low intensity relative to say a five kilometer Olympic, you know, medalist or something like that. So I think that's where a lot of confusion comes in is people just aren't necessarily pinpointing exactly what we're asking. They're looking for like kind of a one-stop shop answer that's going to cover the whole thing. And there just simply isn't, especially when you get down to the individual components of things. I think that's where it gets, gets a little more interesting. Um, so then I end up in a kind of kind of middle area where, you know, folks who really want to point to someone who is achieving performances following a high fat, low carb diet, uh, you know, they want to go say, well, Zach hardly eats any carbs or Zach eats no carbs. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> and then the other side of this spectrum who is kind of pro high carb, like in your 60 to 70% intake camp, you know, they're going to look and say, yeah, but look at his race. He took in 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour. So they're going to ignore my whole year. That's going to average out on a lower end. Like my carb intake is going to be significantly lower than my fat intake. If you just take out my entire year where you're balancing out rest days, recovery days, high training days, races, and everything in between. And I really think it's just kind of a a casualty of not enough time, not enough interest in doing like real deep dives into the specific individual components versus trying to find uh, something that works for everyone, which is almost a failed attempt. I think when you get down to the bottom of it. I dude, I would, 
I would a thousand percent agree with you. It, you know, kind of like what you guys were talking about. It, I always speak in generals because it's always just a general conversation. But yeah, when you're itemizing it, it's completely different. You said it best as far as referencing your intensity. I just had a client just ask me, he says, hey, I'm going to go do two back-to-back 100 miles. My response to him, how do you want to perform in those races? Because he was asking me about where my heart rate should be and, you know, what substrate should I be eating right now? So my question, how do you want to perform? He's like, well, I don't really care about the first 100 miles, but day two, I really want to kick some ass. So my response to him was, I was like, okay, well, don't worry about, you know, keep your heart rate sub-134 because that's where his RER was, where it switched over based off of the test. So I said, keep your, you know, your heart rate around 130. You know, you're going to be utilizing more fats, consume more fats on that day. And then after that race, I want you to consume a little bit more carbohydrates. And then you're going to be pushing around 160 or so because your carbohydrate utilization is going to be higher. So you have to, you have to know all that information beforehand. And it really, it, it, it always, it, it always boils down to how do you want to end up in that race? And I think that's what matters more. And same thing when it comes to like people's nutrition in a whole, it's what's your goals? What do you want to look like? You know, like Sean says, we always, I do too. When I talk about powerlifting, I always think of like these big jack dudes and stuff like that. And I don't think of the 114 pound woman that probably pulls more weight than I do. So <laughs> no, you, you hit on something that I find that I see in my own training all the time. And I try to teach you people who are going down a path of a high fat, low carb diet you know, I think one thing people sometimes find interesting is when I do a consult call with people, at least half the time it's someone coming to me who they say something to the degree of, well, I'm following a strict keto diet and usually it's somewhere around 30 grams a day. And, uh, you know, I'm training for a triathlon. I'm putting in 10 to 15 hours a week. I feel great doing everything in my day-to-day life. I feel great in all my base workouts. The one thing I haven't quite figured out yet, which is why I'm calling you, is I'll be riding with a group and they'll do a surge up a hill and I'll get dropped and I'll eventually catch back up, but then they'll go up another hill and I'll get dropped. And I just can't hammer those, that hill section. So I tell them, I'm like, well, what's your goal here? Is your goal to be at 30 grams of carbohydrate for the rest of your life? Or is your goal to be able to be very much fat adapted, but maybe not as fat adapted as your body can possibly get to potentially at the compromise of you being able to hammer that hill right when you want to. And usually they say, well, no, I want to hammer that hill. So let's try introducing 100 grams of carbohydrate during that activity or like around that activity as opposed to sticking to your, your 30 every day, day in and day out. And more often than not, I'll hear back from after. It's like, oh, I just tried your protocol and I did that same workout. And I felt the same on all my other stuff, but I was also able to hammer the hill. So to me, that's like perfect. You just found the best of both worlds. You got fat adapted enough so that you have consistent energy level throughout the day and you're not kind of a slave to the fast energy source, but you didn't put yourself so far down that, that side of the spectrum that you've almost taken the carbohydrate tool off the, off the table altogether. And I find it interesting because I think endurance offers up and here I am using a nebulous term like endurance again, but <laughs> you know, endurance, I think at least a portion of it or a sliver of it offers up this really unique kind of gray area where you can find these intensities that are just fast enough where you will dip into your, your glycogen stores to a degree, regardless of how low your carbohydrate intake is in your diet, but it's still low enough intensity that you can do it for hours and hours on end. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's that kind of goofy area where like you, you need to kind of hack the, the, 
the activity to with if, if you want to consider like a you know an exogenous fuel source or like an engineered fuel source that's hacking it um you know it's the reality for most endurance athletes in terms of what their protocol is but like i think that's that interesting area where it's like we can't necessarily look at like you know what is your preferred mode of eating day in and day out we need to start kind of finding like well what happens when we introduce this tool when it wasn't there versus, well, this has been working great for everything, but this tiny little bit, and I'm going to accept that. And uh, I find that really interesting too, because when people think of carbohydrates, I still think a lot of times they think high intensity and really it's like, well, how high intensity are we talking and how long are you able to handle that? Cause you do something like Sean does his stuff is so high intensity, you know, his body's going to fail before he, before he even comes close to exhausting his muscle glycogen. So for him, he doesn't need to be pounding gels during his workouts because he's not going to exhaust it without it, you know, but, and, and then, you know, maybe 23 hours later, he's able to restock the lost muscle glycogen through eating fats and proteins and things like that. But then you have the example of the guy trying to do back to back hundred milers. Like that's exactly what I tell people. And they ask like, when do you bring the carbs back in your training? And I'm like, well, it depends on what's coming up. If I'm going to do a big workout and my goal is to be going out there shortly thereafter, maybe even later that afternoon, that's when I'm bringing the carbohydrates back. Cause I just tightened down that window of recovery by a lot compared to what you're going to probably find naturally in most people's lifestyles. hundred percent. John, are you going to say something on that? I, I don't like I said I don't know if I got much to add to, to Zach. I mean Zach, Zach, you know, we just it's just kind of you know at the same time I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning. The goal, keep the goal, the goal. I mean, you know, we we get, you know, I mean, it's no one wants to their their lifetime goal shouldn't be a blood ketone level of X or a gram of carb carbohydrate consumption of Y. I mean, it should be, you know, perform well. You know, I think reasonable body composition, be strong and and be happy. And I think that's. You know, if if we focus on that stuff, then then it just becomes. I mean, I mean, I think people eventually get that, and and you know, we 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 don't need. Not that what you don't do is valuable, but we we shouldn't need we shouldn't need a life coach. We shouldn't need a nutritionist. We shouldn't need much of what we do need. I mean, we shouldn't need an app to tell us how to eat. I mean, we shouldn't need a Fitbit to tell us how to uh, how many steps to take and stuff like that. I mean, it's just it's just. I just kind of uh, sort of try to get people just to just to realize how simple life can be and should be and how it is for every other species on this planet. And we're the only ones that are stupid enough to, you know, <laughs> make our own food and eat it too and screw ourselves up. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's almost sad watching it fold out before us. But yeah, like I said, at the end of the day, when people come to you and they ask, and, and you ask them, what is your actual goal? And their goal is to, you know, whatever, run this or lift that. I mean, you know, and I, and I, I felt victim to this myself a lot with kind of schizophrenic training goals. Like when I was training and I was, when I, you know, I won the Highland Games World Championships as a master's athlete. And I was always, you know, my goal reportedly was to take a big friggin' caber and throw it and flip it or take this 56 pound weight and throw it as far as I can with one arm. And I mean, that was my goal, but I had more fun and I was always constant. How much could I snatch? You know, how much could I deadlift? How much could I, you know, how much could I, uh, you know, one arm snatch something, you know, because those were kind of related, but they weren't really the, the goal I was getting. And so I, I, I find that too many people get caught up in, and I, I don't know, not to belabor a point, but they get caught up in things that, you know, they're, that are not their stated goal. And so it's, sometimes it's just about goals. Like, what is your actual goal here? 
And if your goal is to get lean and look good naked, then your goal is not blood ketones of 0.5 millimolar. I mean, that's not your goal. I mean, you know, I, I think there's too many people that, that end up doing that. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of times people are behaving towards or be, behaving in a way to get them to something that isn't their goal. So like Sean, your example was great. Like if they want to just like look really good, um, you know, in their mind, they might be like, this is my goal. And then somehow they tie into that. Well, in order to do that, I need to be at point or I need to be at five millimoles of blood ketones. So then they hyper-focus on that. And even though they think their goal is, you know, a good body composition, essentially it's not. And they're, they're chasing something different. And it's like this, this almost this state of confusion that is working against them. Without a doubt. <clears throat> Guys, I could not agree with you anymore. And I see it a lot. I, I see continuously when I have conversations with clients about things. And, you know, I just did a quick story. I just did a fitness retreat in Hawaii and I had seven people all there for the right reasons. And we're talking about, they're all, they're all overweight and they're, you know, they're desiring to lose weight. And the problem is, is I've, I've known five of them I've known for a very long time. And I kind of seen the transition of what they've been doing wrong. And the whole time when I was doing lectures or, you know, I had two other practitioners with me doing lectures, they were asking these questions that were like so outlandish that we're like, one, we don't even, we shouldn't even answer it because who cares. And then two, why don't we just worry about, Hey, you guys have, you guys, none of, and this was kind of, you know, correlated between everybody. They didn't sleep right. You know, they didn't eat consistently. They ate maybe one meal a day. And if they ate one meal a day, it was shit. So I was like, why don't we just worry about balancing out our days and sleeping? And then once we get there, then we can worry about how much vitamin C or what type of MCT oil should I take? Who cares? Like, just eat right. How about that? And why don't you try sleeping at night? Because that would really do wonders for you. So that was that was my point to that. Yeah, I think I think like the sleep component is of just a great thing to highlight too. Cause I mean, I see this in the, in all the ultra endurance community a lot, because I mean, if you end up finding yourself running ultra marathons, you're a, you're more like more than likely a bit into the extreme in some shape or form. Like that's going to be like a little bit of your personality. You probably just never find yourself in that community in the first place. So like, you know, extreme things sometimes I think are seen, they, they tend to hyper-focus on the act itself. Like, oh, if I'm going to be running a hundred miles, I need to be running a ton. Therefore I need to get up at three 30 in the morning to do it. And it's like, they completely forget the whole second half of the training adaptation phase, which is the recovery side of things. The part where you're doing nothing, where you're sleeping really well. Uh, and it's like, you can move so much with that too. And, and then when you start to, couple in sleep quality with nutrition quality, it becomes even more of a kind of a holistic process at that point. But if you're interested in that, it, be, it can be exciting. If not, I think it's just like, you know, some people just, they just want to do the activity they want to do and they don't want to think about the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. Sean, if I had to go back to your question before about what I did, the clients I like to take on are the clients that come to me that eat great, they exercise and they sleep great, but they can't figure out what's wrong with them. Those are the clients I like. Those are the ones that I like to dig into. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's, that's, 
Well, I mean, that's great. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, if we look at the general population, that's, that's obviously the minority of the population. And, you know, unfortunately, one of the problems we have is most, most people just don't care, you know, what they eat and how they sleep yeah. and all that stuff. So we, we've got that big inertia, you know, issue with inertia with the population. And, and, and you know, most people just, you know, this, this is not on the radar. And, 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 it, and the only time it does is if they're either, you know, that's their personality, they're, they're competitive or whatever, or something compels them to do that some life event some illness they get scared or something like that then they then they want to turn it around but so let me ask you a question you got somebody that's on a good diet you got somebody that's sleeping well you got somebody that's training well and 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 their issue is you know i don't know what their potential issue is but i mean assuming it's something performance related what are you doing to figure figure it out um at that point in time i go straight to labs and i see kind of what their chemistry is doing and that usually points me in the right direction. A, a lot of commonalities I've seen, surprisingly or not, has been hydrochloric acid dysfunction. So I look at to what some symptoms that they have. And a lot of times they're going to have some sort of symptom. And majority, I've been always referring back to the gut. Because nine times out of ten, it's usually relevant to that. Whether it's something else that's a byproduct of that, but usually it's relatable. And you know, I, I do simple methods. I, I use, you know, simple like GI repair. I use a lot of L-glutamine to kind of repair that mechanism. And the other byproduct of that, that I've seen been a lot of people creating allergies in the body. Um, there's, I mean, there's a whole nother side of that that is a little bit beyond me when it comes to allergens. But when people, the, the people that I see that do have those issues are the people that have been robots with life. And they're the people that eat the same meal three times a day and they eat the same times and, you know, kind of like an old school bodybuilder, right? You know, they have that monotony in life and they're creating different allergies by eating the same thing over and over again. And that's usually their issue. So a lot of the times they just need to shake things up and, you know, by me repairing the gut, you know, implementing maybe a digestive, you know, some probiotics, putting some good bugs in there, usually, you know, recreates and reestablishes a good biome and they're back on keeping track. And it's, it's kind of disheartening for somebody to come to me, that has been super lean or has been super fit and all of a sudden they're gaining weight and they're like, wait a second, I've been doing the same thing. But then again, they're not creating any adaptations. They're running a monotonous life. Let me, let me uh, just have you expand a little bit upon the issue with gastric, gastric acid production, because that is a, a probably an unrecognized common issue. And, and, and we know that, you know, the human pH is, supposed to be fairly acidic and in fact we have one of the most acidic stomachs in all the animal kingdom mm -hmm. uh, normal humans t tend to run 1.5 ish you know resting ph which puts us on par with things like vultures hyenas and other uh, scavenger animals is there's some pretty good evidence anthropologically that we probably started out scavenging you know meat off of animals that have been sitting out for a while and exposed to pathogens and so that's why our ph development we see that people, a lot of people have been exposed to medications like PPIs or proton pump inhibitors, oh, 100%. Uh, particularly with aging. We see um, just a diminution of uh, gastric acid production. So how do we, how do you like to diagnose that condition? And then what are your thoughts on how you might be able to treat it? You know, ideally it's not more or less a diagnosis it's a sense of just listening to the person. And you said it best. So, what I usually see is more of NSAIDs and I do see SSRIs. And sometimes, you know, I do see that and, you know, somebody halfway through a conversation, like, oh, by the way, I take Adderall or by the way, I've been on Zoloft for X, Y, and Z. 
and it's been diminishing the, you know, their microbiome there. And, you know, in relation to acidity, yeah, the other byproduct I see, you know, ideal stomach should be around three as far as acidity goes, you know, give or take. And when somebody's over consuming an extremely acidic product, i.e. protein, that's going to create disruptions. And a lot of the times the byproduct of that is, you know, acid reflux. And then halfway through a conversation, they'll be like, oh, by the way, I eat some Tums every now and again because, you know, my stomach, you know, I, my throat's burning or something like that. So those are usually the, the, the tall tale signs of that. And, you know, my pretty much my go-to on that is I'll put hydrochloric acid back in them. I'll, I'll use a HCL product with some pepsin in it. And, you know, nine times out of 10, it solves it. If that doesn't work, then I send them to a GI doc. Does that answer that? Yeah, no, that's interesting. You know, I think one of the things with, with reflux is another thing. It's another sort of, in my view, thing we treat very poorly. I mean, we, we realize that, you know, gas, gastroesophageal reflux disease is basically acid in the esophagus where it doesn't belong. And we treat that by trying to reduce the, the acid production in the stomach. Um, and that really doesn't really help the thing, help the issues. It might, it may, you know, it may help with the gastroesophageal reflux disease or the symptoms from it, but it's not why that's occurring. You know, acid in our esophagus is not, not there because we have too much stomach acid. Um, yeah. You know, what we see is it's, it's being unnaturally pushed up into our esophagus. And then when we look at what's causing that, um, there's some pretty good thought that, that foods that produce a lot of gas or fermentable foods uh, tend to do that. And uh, that, that tends to be uh, the issue for a lot of people. And they see when they eliminate those foods, they stop producing that extra pressure in the stomach. And then the, 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 the acid no longer ends up in their esophagus. And that seems to, to, to actually address the issue, which is something I see repeatedly in folks that, that, you know, you know, follow the diet that I do, that their acid reflux goes away, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I think GERD is pretty common. I also think that something else that's, publicly out there now and I kind of feel like it may be thrown around too much but you know SIBO that's another thing that could be a byproduct of that and causing issues in the stomach and I I don't run too many SIBO tests um, I've done maybe like two or three in my time um, but usually it's for me if I have to order a SIBO test it's usually like a process of elimination and that's just that's just another I, I kind of feel like it's just a, a common name that's been thrown out but I feel like acid disruption in the gut is a little bit more common and I've seen it. And that's why I'm a big proprietor of using L-glutamine and repairing the gut. And I think for somebody who's chronically been eating a substantial amount of protein in, I would almost be subjective to say maybe too much protein that has been in my eyes, been one of the biggest issues of causing gut disruption has been the over excessive consuming of proteins and not saying proteins are bad because boy, I love it, but I'm just saying, <laughs> The overconsumption. Where, where do you see? Uh, I'm just I'm just curious as to see the, the literature that you'd use to support that protein is causing gut disruption or gut permeability issues. Where where, where is that coming from, by the way? Um, that's not literature. That's me and seeing it within the clinic. So that's me seeing it within myself. So ideally, we know that the most acidic producing, you know, micro, our macronutrient that we have is protein. And when I'm looking at somebody that comes to me with a perfect diet, with a perfect frame, with, you know, a really good percentage of body fat, and yet this person is eating, you know, two, 2.2 grams of protein per body pound, that's usually the tall tale sign for me or my correlation there. 
I haven't seen it directly in literature, but I can look for it because that sounds like a good idea. But now. Yeah. So, so there's some evidence. Options. There's some evidence that uh, particularly uh, sulfur containing amino acids like methionine and others, which do tend to be more prevalent in protein, particularly animal source proteins will cause acidification of the urine. Now I'm not aware that it causes any acidification in the serum or the cellular levels. And so I think it's fairly debatable. And I have this, I have this debate with vegans, not infrequently because they're all, they think being alkaline is the key to longevity and they want the mucusless diet. And it sort of, to me, goes back to this Arnold Aaron stuff from the 1900s where it's kind of a lot of bit uh, stuff that, that's, I think, very, very unproven in my view. So, I mean, I, I would just, I, 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 I don't know about that sort of issue based on what I've seen and experienced, but uh, I mean, I think there's certainly, uh, there, there may be, you know, I think most people under eat protein more than overeat protein, quite honestly. I think the bigger problem we have in this country in general is we only eat 12 to 15% of our calories coming from protein. Whereas I think probably humans probably were better served eating closer to 25 to 30% most not most likely, but that's debatable. We can debate about that all the time. I and mean, guys like uh, Garth Davis, the vegan advocate, he wrote his book, Proteinaholic, thinks we eat too much protein. Um, I, I think there's a lot of research out there that points to higher protein being protective for preventing sarcopenia, preventing osteoporosis. And again, the point becomes what's enough, what's too much, too much is uh, you know, we had, we had Professor Anthony, uh, uh, not Anthony, we had, uh, God, I'm blanking, who do we have, who do we have on Zach? Oh, Jose Antonio, yeah. Jose Antonio. Jose Antonio has done all the, a lot of the protein overfeeding studies on athletes and uh, tell a lot of good public, public research, you know, published literature on that, showing guys eating, you know, pretty hefty amounts. And, the, and again, this, the caveat may be the resistance trained athletes, they're males, and they're eating, you know, some of them eating 500 grams of protein, 600 grams of protein a day. I mean, they, they did do a study where they, they added 200 grams of protein a day to the diet and compared to a control group. And the, and the, the guys that got the protein um, didn't really have any adverse effects that they could measure, renal effects, liver effects. They put on a little bit of lean body mass. They didn't gain any excess body fat. So it's kind of interesting about the protein thing there. But, I'll, but I'll, you know, like I said, I'm not going to discount anybody's experience um, but I, I just like to sort of put an, put an overall perspective there. I'm, I, and, and my bias is I'm a protein guy, man. I've, I've been eating a lot of protein my whole life. I eat more now in my 50s than I ever have my whole life, and it's worked really well for me. Um, you know, but I, but I do a lot of things right, I think. But yeah. anyway. <clears throat> and there's nothing wrong with, with disagreeing. And, and like I said, it is my, my observation with it, and I haven't seen the literature. But, you know, in the same retrospect, it's – I think it boils down to utilization as well, right? If you're a person who doesn't move very much, you're not lifting weights and you don't necessarily need the protein, I don't think you should be eating all that protein. But if you're somebody who's crushing weights and you're an athlete, absolutely, I think you need it. Um, I don't really know what a good number is, you know, in the literature, RDAs, you know, 0.8. But I think that is way too low. And I think you know, for a woman who generally comes to me and now we're switching over from the, I, you know, the person who eats perfect to a person who doesn't eat much at all. And it comes to me and they maybe get 50 to 60 grams of protein a day. And they're like, Oh, I think that's perfect. And that's enough for me. And I'm like, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to talk to them and tell them that it isn't because 
a lot of the standards out there, when you have RDAs that are super low, but that aren't made for somebody who's actually working out, it's hard to defend that. It's hard to compete against that because, you know, it, it's, it's out there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think, I think if I remember right, the message that Professor Don Lehman, Stu Phillips, and Ho, Dr. Jose, Professor Jose Antonio was saying was that some of the newer studies that, that they've had come out recently are showing that some of the RDAs, it's more, it, it, there may be some value to starting out at the higher end of that. And that should be kind of your target versus trying to be at the lower end or in the middle somewhere from that, if I'm remembering right. Do you remember, Sean, like, I think, you know, like I said, and there's, and, and what Tony is saying about people that are training versus the sedentary people, I think I agree with. I think, you know, there's, there's no point in eating 500 grams of protein a day if you just sit on your ass all day. I mean, it's just, that's just silly. Um, but I think what we're seeing, you know, certainly with the, the guys that are experts in protein metabolism, and I would point to Stu Phillips, Don Lehman, and, and others, Without a doubt. Um, they're going to say, you know, 0.8 is way, way, you know, undervaluing protein. It's too low. And when we compare that to uh, uh, what they recommend, they're, they're going to be looking at something more like uh, closer to two grams per kilogram, you know, or something like a pound per body weight, pound per gram of body weight, something somewhere in that, that range for guys that are, you know, active and so on. And, and then whether you go up and down from that, there's some, there's some evidence, maybe even a little bit more than that might be helpful. I know, uh, uh, there's some studies out there that support a little higher. There's other studies that show 1.6. And so somewhere in that, you know, 1.6 to 2.6 grams of protein per kilogram protein per kilogram seems to be the sweet spot for most people for, you know, putting on muscle. I mean, that's not far off of what I am. I may be a little bit on the higher end of that, but that seems to work pretty well. But then again, I mean, I'm not, I'm in a, I'm in a situation where I'm not taking any carb, carbohydrate. And so that, that may, you know, jigger the numbers a little bit because now I'm making my glycogen via gluconeogenesis. And so certain percentage of that protein is probably going to refill my glycogen stores, particularly my liver glycogen overnight so that I can train and perform every day like I do. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's, 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 it can be individual based on, you know, your particular athletic goals, your particular body composition goals, and then your baseline diet. So I think it's, again, this is not a static target. I think it moves a little bit and we have to just like vitamin D and everything else in here. It's all, it's all more complicated than we, we like to make it is. And, and like anytime that like people consult with me, they want a macro percentage or they want how many grams of this do I eat? And I'm like, I don't know, man, I can't tell you. I can tell you how to, how, how to sort of play with these things and, and what things may, may impact that and, we're, and, and maybe a starting point, but you're going to have to adjust it as time goes by. Yeah, without a doubt. And as well as that, I mean, going right off of what you're saying, it's got to be adjusted to your day. People are so stuck on a specific like, oh, I need 100 grams of this, 100 grams of that, and 50 grams of that. But that doesn't account for, well, what if, you know, what if Zach's going to crush 100 miles tomorrow and the next day he's doing nothing? You shouldn't stay on that same regiment. You have to eat for what you're doing. And I think that education part of understanding macronutrients and micronutrients is essential for everybody. Just, just getting the idea of what energy actually is and consuming energy and not so much worrying about the food itself. And I think the society has kind of changed that a little bit. I feel like we were always so stuck on calories, like we need to eat X amount of calories. And now it's kind of converted over to actually understanding macronutrients. 
Yeah, and I think you you hit on the head. The hardest thing I have to describe to people is that very situation you described is like, you know, you can pick one day out of the year on my calendar. I may have run 100 miles. You can pick another day and I may barely have gotten off the couch. So <laughs> it's like, a, you know, if you ask me what I eat in a day, it's like, well, which day you want to hear about? <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Cool. Well, guys, I actually have to hop on another call pretty quick here. Um, but Tony, it's been awesome having you on the show. I think our listeners are going to really like the discussion we had here. Is uh, there anything else you want to share or if there's any spots, social media, website that you'd like our listeners to know about so they can check out more about you? No, just, you know, if you're a woman and you want to learn more about menopause uh, on Facebook, Embrace the Change is a private group that we have. And it's just a ton of free information. And the reality is it's a good connecting piece for women to talk about their issues and it, it kind of just puts things out there and it's a no judgment zone. I think it's really good. And other than that, you know, kick the fitness and performance is kickboxy slash, you know, strength and performance gym and performance sports nutrition and rehab is more of a, you know, a place and a platform just that, you know, we push, push a ton of information out, but that's more science literature stuff. That's really it. All right. Thank you so much, Tony, for coming on. Appreciate it. It's been some good information and good discussion. Zach, like you, I got to go. I got to get on another phone call, too. We're back at 2 o'clock, right? Is that 2 o'clock? Yep. Okay, man. All right. All right. Thanks, Chance. I appreciate you guys, man. Yeah. Take care, Tony. Have a good rest of the day. Have a good one. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.